Welcome to Community Alliance Church. We're glad to have you here with us today. My name is Joe Flores, and I am one of the pastors here at our church. And so, I kind of want to start off by talking about this. When you read your Bible, there are certain passages in Scripture that you come across that I like to say, like, they provide this crystal clear snapshot kind of everything that we believe and everything that we do as followers of Jesus Christ. And the passage that we're going to study this morning is absolutely one of those snapshot passages. This morning we're going to be together in Luke chapter 7. And to kind of get us started to where we're going to go, I want to set up the passage with this. They're going to put a news headline up on the screen for you this morning. I came across this in my news feed a couple weeks ago. Maybe you saw it. I thought it was pretty interesting. It says, flabbergasted. Chase Bank forgives all credit card debt for Canadian customers. So, so here's what happened. So the U.S.-based Chase Bank had, had offered credit cards in Canada to customers there. But back in March of 2018, they decided they were getting out of the Canadian credit card business. So they let all of their customers know that their credit cards would be turned off. They won't be able to use them anymore. But that they would need to continue paying any remaining balance that they owed on those credit cards. So customers continued to do that. <coughs> Until a few weeks ago, when customers like Paul Adamson gets his August statement in the mail, and he opens it up, and he finds out that there is a zero balance on his credit card statement. Well, he owed like $1,600 still on that card, so he was a pretty honest guy. I got to give him credit. He calls up the credit card company to try to convince them that they had made a mistake, and he was actually told on the phone, no, sir, you, you don't owe anything anymore. Well, he was still skeptical, didn't really want to believe it until the next day he gets a letter in the mail that, from Chase, and it verified that all of his remaining credit card debt had been wiped clean. And so in an interview, he told an interview that his reaction was that he was stunned. In another interview, he used that phrase, flabbergasted. Must be what they say in Canada. If you're curious, though, right, so I read a story like this and it immediately grabs my attention. If you're curious like me, the first thing I want to know is, why would a credit card company do this? I'm thinking, like, is it possible that maybe even the credit card companies in Canada are nicer than they are in America? Or, you know, maybe more than wondering why, then I stumped to this idea of, like, all right, so what if that happened to me? What would my response be? What would your response be? What if you went to the mail tomorrow and you got your mortgage statement or your credit card statement or your car loan statement and all of a sudden your debt was gone? All right. You'd be calling Dave Ramsey and getting on the phone and screaming, debt free. Maybe you'd be like this guy, uh, Douglas Turner. He, he was a Chase customer in Canada. He owed $4,500 still on his card. And he said, I was over the moon all last night. Again, something they must say in Canada. <laughs> so, so this is what I thought. None of us are going to experience this, but it is kind of fun to dream. And as I did a little bit of dreaming myself in reading this article, you know what else I realized? Joy might not be the only emotion that I, that I would feel. Because I will admit to you, in an honest moment, I'm sitting there thinking, you know what? After that initial elation wore off, I would probably feel a little bit of regret that I didn't go out and buy more stuff <laughs> on the credit card. Like, if I didn't know how that's, that's how the game worked, I would have played differently. Or, think about it, okay, so... 
what if you were this really, really responsible customer? And for months and months and months, you had worked hard and saved and skimped so that you could pay your debt off yourself. And in July, you made your last payment on your credit card. And then in August, you get this statement. And there's a zero balance. Not because it had been forgiven, but because you had paid it off yourself. Then how would you feel to find out that all these other less responsible people had gotten off so easily? There was a college student. Her name is Christine Lang-Louise. And uh, she hadn't paid her credit card debt for five years. And she kind of put it best. She said, it's kind of like I'm being rewarded for my irresponsibility. Kind of would feel like that, right? So depending on how much debt you had been forgiven and maybe how much of that debt you had paid yourself, your response to the forgiveness could range anywhere from flabbergasted to feeling kind of ripped off. So you might be wondering, why are we talking about a decision that a credit card company in Canada made? Well, I bring this story up today. Because it is strikingly similar to a story that Jesus told at a dinner party in Luke chapter 7. And in Luke chapter 7, we're going to see that just as with financial forgiveness, when it comes to spiritual forgiveness, our response to that forgiveness is often determined by how we view our need for it. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and take it out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, feel free to take out a mobile device, use an app to get the Bible, grab a Bible in front of you, or we'll put it on the screen as well, and you can follow along there. Luke chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 36, so if you can follow along with me. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When we read the Bible, this might be the kind of place that we would expect to find Jesus. Jesus was known as a religious teacher, so it would only make sense that he would hang out with some other religious teacher types. And if you know anything about Pharisees, you probably know that Pharisees were absolutely the religious teacher type. They were known throughout all the land for their strict adherence to the Jewish religious laws. Now, Now, all Jews were very religious people, but the Pharisees, they were the religious all-star team. They knew the scriptures better than anyone else. They followed the rules better than anyone else. They were more proud of it than anyone else. They never bent the rules. They took the rules and set them in concrete and reinforced them with rebar. In fact, if you kind of wanted to get an idea of how the Pharisees lived their lives, Pharisees believed My love and devotion to God results in God's love and forgiveness of me. That was the Pharisee's mindset. If I am good, if I keep the rules, God will love me. And if I'm bad and I break the rules, God will not love me and will punish me. That was the mindset. Into this room where they're having dinner, verse 37, Luke tells us that a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. This woman's sin was so shameful that Luke doesn't actually come out and state what it is. He just implies it. But it's widely believed throughout history that this woman was a prostitute. She sold sex with herself in order to get money. 
The alabaster jar of perfume might have been sort of a subtle hint that Luke gives us that, that would imply this profession. Uh, it was common for women in that time period to wear a jar of perfume around their neck, kind of like on a necklace. And, and one historian actually says that that perfume on a necklace around their neck was used to sweeten the breath and perfume the person. So given her implied profession here, it's not hard to imagine how useful a tool that might have been for what she did for a living. We might think it's weird that this woman just barges into dinner, but actually we know that dinners like this were very public events in that time, so it's not unexpected that she might be there. But what happens next would have been absolutely unexpected. Luke continues as he kind of builds uh, and heightens the moment in verse 38. He says, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Dinner's taking place as normal. The guests are reclining and having a good time when all of a sudden they hear a sound. What's that noise? That sounds like, is that crying? And then a smell hits their noses. It's not a bad smell, but it's not a smell that matches any of the food that's in front of them on the table. So they start to shift in their seats, and they're craning their necks a little bit to try to find out what's happening. And they realize that all of this commotion is coming from around this guest, Jesus. Dinner suddenly stops. The music comes to a halt. At this point, everyone is standing so that they can see, and they cannot believe what they see. The sound is a weeping prostitute. Because of how the guests reclined at the table, Jesus' feet was the only part of his body that she could access. So that's where she stayed. And she wept so much that her tears were enough to wash his feet. If you take what Luke writes literally here, the Bible actually says that she rained her tears, or rain showered her tears on his feet. And then this next detail that Luke mentions might not be very noticeable to us, but it would have been unimaginable to the people who were in the room. Luke writes, then she wiped wiped them, his feet, with her hair. She would have had to let down her hair in order to be able to wipe his feet. Now, hair in that culture, a woman's hair, was a sexually provocative part of her body. And to display it was a sexual act. Now, we might smirk at this and think it's like weird, but people in that culture, even today, women have to wear a hair covering over their hair, not to expose it. In fact, take a look at this writing from the second century. It's a Jewish writing that kind of gives us an idea of what a big deal this would have been. The second century Jewish writing says this. It talks about a bad man who sees his wife go out with her hair unfastened and spin cloth in the street with her armpits uncovered, and bathe with the men. Such a one, it is a religious duty to divorce, as it says, because he hath found some unseemly thing in her. To the people in the room that were watching these events unfold, what the woman was doing might have been equivalent to her taking a bath with Jesus. That's how offensive it could have been. And the point of this is not so that we can look at it and think it's ridiculous. The point of this is what would those who have witnessed this have thought? At least it was an inappropriate interruption to their dinner. But most likely, they thought that this was a sexual advance to Jesus. They thought that she was coming on to him. 
which given the nature and what they thought about the woman, wasn't that surprising. But what would have been completely surprising is that Jesus was doing nothing to stop her. They had to have been thinking, when is he going to push her away? When? When is he going to tell her how wrong her sinful life is? When is he going to pull out a scripture and condemn her? When is he going to send her to the temple to make a sacrifice? In Luke chapter 7, verse 39, Luke lets us in on what the Pharisee was thinking, the guy who invited him to dinner in the first place. Luke writes, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I give the Pharisee a little bit of credit. I mean, he gives Jesus the benefit of the doubt. Judging by what he says, he doesn't think that Jesus is immoral. He just thinks that Jesus is dumb. As they might say in the South, bless his heart. <laughs> he, do, he don't know what she does. He don't know what kind of woman. He doesn't know what this looks like. Finally, in verse 40, Jesus reveals what he is thinking. But he doesn't tell the woman what he's thinking. He tells the Pharisee and us through a story. He says this in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh boy, tell me, teacher. Can't wait. This is the story. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, which is about $60,000 in our money, and the other 50, which might be about six grand. Now, there's this obvious disparity between the two debtors in the story. One owes a lot more than the other, and that is the point. If this were kind of credit card debt, one guy had put some necessities of life on his credit card. His kid needed braces. His truck broke down. They needed groceries. And so he built up some credit card debt on the necessities of life. The other was completely irresponsible. He went crazy. He went out and bought a new truck. He went on extravagant vacations. He remodeled the house. There was a difference in the debt, but there was a similarity in the result. Because for both of these guys... At the end of the month, when the statement came, and they saw the balance, and they saw their ability to pay, they both made the same phone call to the same 100 number and said the same thing. As Jesus put it, neither of them had the money to pay him back. Neither of them had enough money to pay him back. The implications of this would not have been lost on the people who are hearing this story. See, today when we think, I can't pay my debt, we think the worst consequence might be, I'm going to get some really annoying phone calls from money or from uh, debt collectors, or the next time I apply for a Kohl's charge card, I'm going to get rejected. But in this culture, not being able to pay your debt was a very serious thing because your land could have been taken away from you as payment for that debt. And if you lost your land then you wouldn't be able to grow crops in this agricultural society and you needed to be able to grow crops so you could eat and so you could sell those so you could have money. In fact, if it got really bad, you could actually be conscripted into temporary slavery until you could work off your debt. So neither of these guys could pay their debt. And so what Jesus says next would have been very, very relieving to them. He said, so he forgave the debts of both. He forgave the debts of both. Okay, so think about this with me. Why would a moneylender forgive debt? Maybe he wasn't a very good moneylender. 
I mean, I'm thinking about this. Maybe he didn't understand how money lending worked. Like, if you have money and you lend it to broke people, but you never get it back, it will not be long before you are the broke people. I got to think about it more, though. We have to realize that the world of Jesus was different than our world today. We can drive down the road and we can see institutions that are sort of created for the entire purpose of lending people money. But institutions like that didn't exist in the Judean countryside where this story was being told. So if you lived in a world where you couldn't get online or drive down the street or make a phone call and borrow money from an institution and you needed money, the question becomes not where would you turn, but to whom would you turn? And I think the answer is probably a friend or a family member. Hopefully one who liked you because you're bumming money. And so when Jesus told the story, the people, I think, weren't thinking of an institution when they thought of the money lender. They were thinking of a person. So, so if you borrowed thousands and thousands of dollars from a friend or a family member that liked you, but you weren't able to pay it back, what would happen? They wouldn't like you anymore the relationship that you had would be harmed. It would be broken. So following this logic, why would a money-lending friend or family member forgive your debt? And I think it only makes sense if that friend or family member cared more about their relationship with you than receiving back the debt from you. It only makes sense, I think, if they, if they said to you, as long as we have this debt, as long as you owe me this, there's going to be this rift. Our relationship's never going to be the same. And look, I see, you, you don't have the ability to pay it back. You can't pay back what you owe to me. So I'm going to do what you can't do. I'm going to forgive your debt. Because I care more about the relationship with you than getting the debt from you. And do you realize that Jesus says the same thing to you and me? That he cares so much about a relationship with us that he'll do whatever it takes to forgive our debt. The woman in this story, she got this. She understood it. And whenever we view the money lender in the story as a person rather than as, than as an institution, I think what Jesus says next makes more sense because he wasn't telling a financial story. He was telling a relational story. If you look at the rest of verse 42, Jesus asked the Pharisee this question. Now, which of them will love him more? It makes sense that you could love a person that you had a relationship with. Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus says. Jesus takes the woman's response and he identifies it as love and then he connects it back with the forgiveness that she had received. And he says, what this response is, it has nothing to do with an immoral advance. And it has everything to do with love for me in response to the forgiveness that I have given to her. You see, this woman for her entire life had believed that because of her sin, that she was a nobody. That she was a lesser than. That she was an outcast. Not only had her community used her and then rejected her, but she believed that God had rejected her too. 
She lived with false love from men and no hope of love from God. And then she hears Jesus' teaching. Maybe a teaching like he gave in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, when he says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And she heard a message that wasn't about a God who was for everyone except for her. He heard, she heard a message about a God who was for everyone, especially her, a sinner. And so this response to Jesus might have seemed over the top. It might have seemed inappropriate. It might have made everyone in the room uncomfortable except for Jesus because he understood it. And he realized that our response to the forgiveness that we receive from him is often determined by how we view our need for it. And she saw her extreme need for forgiveness. And when she received it, she had an extreme response. Now, I think Jesus was in a funky mood that day, kind of a mind-reading kind of mood, because judging by what he says next, I think he read the Pharisee's mind a second time, and when he read his mind the second time, he realized that the Pharisee was thinking, that's a nice story, but what does it have to do with me? Look what Jesus says now in verse 44. Jesus lays it out for him. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. We might think, what's the big deal? If you kissed me when you came into my house, we'd have a bigger problem than not having oil. I don't want to go. <laughs> We're pretty relaxed in our culture, but, but to understand really what's going on, we have to understand that proper hospitality in the first century Middle Eastern culture was extremely important. A proper host, and everyone who saw this knew it, a proper host would have at minimum give Jesus, given Jesus a kiss of greeting and given him some water to wash his feet and some oil to wash his hands and his head. The fact that this Pharisee did not do this was not an accidental oversight. It wasn't like he forgot. It was an intentional insult directed at Jesus. As Westerners, it's really hard for us to understand the, the extreme of this offense. Uh, the only way I can think to maybe, if you really want to understand it, when you're walking out of church someday, today, find somebody and ask them how much money that they make. Or if that doesn't work, find a woman and go up to her and say, how much do you weigh? <laughs> if you do that, you will get a glimpse of how insulted Jesus should have been. I advise you just take my word for it, though. <laughs> Jesus had every right to leave. He should have left, but he didn't. Instead, he overlooked the Pharisees' insult. In fact, when he brings it up here, he's not trying to put him in his place. He's trying to help him to see what his deeper issue is. You see, when the Pharisee heard Jesus' story, he realized that he wasn't the 500 denarii sinner, but he didn't even think he was the 50 denarii sinner. He thought he was a zero denarii sinner. In fact, he may have even thought that God owed him for how well he had kept the rules. 
And because of this, he didn't see his need for forgiveness in his own life, and he didn't respond to Jesus. But Jesus couldn't have been any more explicit in the story and in his explanation. He's saying, Simon, you failed as a host. You have mistakes and failures and sin in your life. In fact, Simon, this woman that you think you are so much holier than, and this woman that you think that you are so much closer to God than, she is the one who is making up for your failure. See, this is, this is what Simon thought. Simon thought that my love and devotion to God result in God's love and forgiveness of me. He thought he could earn it. And when you live with this mindset, then whether you're a 500 denary sinner or a 50 denary sinner, whether your failures are a, being a rude host or living a sinful life like the woman, it doesn't matter. The result is the same. You accrue a debt that you cannot pay. And no matter how much love and devotion that you muster toward God, it'll never be enough to earn his forgiveness. The woman got this. She realized this. The woman in the story realized that my love and devotion to God can never result in God's love and forgiveness of me. That it's actually the other way around. That God's love and forgiveness of me must result in my love and devotion to God. Jesus says it this way. He says it this way in verse 47. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Notice the sequence. Her sins were forgiven, then her love was shown. She didn't earn the forgiveness with her love. She responded to the forgiveness with her love. And then he says, whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And implied is whoever has been forgiven much loves much. Here's the point. Love and devotion to Jesus is the response to, not the requirement for the forgiveness that he gives us. Love is our response to what Jesus has done for us, not his response to what we have done for him. Luke finishes the story. Verse 48, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Notice whose response Luke doesn't reveal. And that's Simon the Pharisees. He doesn't tell us how Simon responded. The whole story drives me to ask, How did Simon respond? Did he get it or not? But Luke doesn't tell us. And in a way, I, I think he doesn't tell us because of this. Because this story is not about how did Simon respond. This story is about how will you respond? How will I respond? You see, up until the moment when they met Jesus, both Simon and the woman lived with this belief in their life. They both believed that my love and devotion to God will result in his love and forgiveness of me. They both lived with that same mindset, but the difference was Simon thought he was doing great. And the woman thought that because of her sin, that she had no hope of ever having God's love and forgiveness. But they both believe the same thing, is that their love for God will earn his forgiveness. Their things that they do for God will earn his acceptance. Have you believed this in your life? Look at your life. How have you lived this way? I think sometimes we can live like we have this spiritual bank account. And as long as we maintain a positive balance, as long as our numbers are in the black, 
then we're okay with God. And so in our lives, we try to maximize the deposits. We try to do good things and be a good person to put credit into our account. And then we try to minimize the withdrawals. We hope that we don't mess up, that we don't sin, because we don't want to draw on that bank account balance because we feel like at the end of the day, as long as we do enough good stuff and we do a few enough bad things, then our balance will stay good. And some folks here, you might feel like you're a Simon. When you get your statement at the end of the month, you look at the balance and you see big black numbers. You think your balance is good. You might even think God is lucky to have you as a customer. He needs more customers like you. Others, you might identify with the woman. You have secrets. You have shame. Thoughts like, I am too far from God. Or I'm too far gone. Or God has given up on me. Those thoughts run through your head. When you get your statement at the end of the month, you don't even open the envelope anymore. You just throw it on the counter. You don't want to acknowledge how bad it is. You can't deal with it. But whether you are a Simon or the sinful woman, whether you're a 500 denarii sinner or a 50 denarii sinner or a 5 denarii sinner, Jesus' message is the same. We all have a sin debt we cannot pay. We all have negative red numbers when it comes to our spiritual account balance. That's why in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John writes this. He says about Jesus, he gave his life to pay for our sins. He not only paid for our sins, he paid for the sins of the whole world. That's everybody. It means that everybody Regardless of the amount of sin or, or how many wrong things or how many good things you've done, we all have a sin debt in our life. And Jesus gave his life to pay for all of our sins. He's saying that Jesus is like the money lender. Jesus cared so much about the relationship with us that he would do whatever it takes to make that relationship whole. And whatever it took was giving his life to pay our debt so he could transfer our balance, our debt, to his account. He said, I'll take the bill and wipe our spiritual debt clean and wipe our sin clean. And he isn't demanding repayment from us. He's desiring a response from us. He's desiring a response like the woman's. He's desiring that we will receive the forgiveness that he wants to give to us and respond by living a life of love and devotion to him. So I ask you today, have you responded by receiving the forgiveness from Jesus? Now, when we look at this story, I think there's also a challenge for those of us in the room who feel like at some point in our lives we have received that forgiveness. For those in the room that say, I follow Jesus. I think, and I see this in myself too, that sometimes as Christians, we can be all about receiving the forgiveness, but kind of ignore the response of love and devotion in our lives. To use Jesus' words, we're thrilled to be forgiven much, but we're really resistant to live a life of love and devotion much. The forgiveness that we receive sometimes doesn't manifest itself and how we live our lives. In fact, I think that sometimes Christians read stories like this and they get confused. And they would say, see, Jesus just loves and forgives her. She doesn't really care how she lives her life. And we take it and we think about our lives. See, Jesus just loves and forgives. He doesn't really care how I live my life. I think when we look a little closer at the story, we realize that Jesus loves and forgives us. And 
He really cares how we live our lives. Jesus forgives us and really cares how we live our life. In fact, look at this. Do you remember what Luke said that she brought to the party with her? That alabaster jar of perfume around her neck. And do you remember it felt a little awkward? And you try to cover your kid's ears when I said, think about what she would use that and how she might please her customers as a prostitute with that perfume. Look in the story again. What did she do with that perfume? In verse 46, Jesus says that she has poured perfume on my feet. She took that symbol of her life before Jesus, and she poured it out on his feet. She said, this is part of my past. This is who I used to be. This is not who I am anymore. This is how I used to live. This is not how I'm going to live anymore. I don't need this. Jesus, I'm giving it to you. She didn't just receive his forgiveness. She responded with a changed life. So my question to all of us in the room who would call ourselves followers of Jesus is, do we have alabaster jars of perfume around our neck? Is there an area of your life that maybe you have said, I have asked for forgiveness for, but I refuse to change what I asked for forgiveness for in my life? Do you expect Jesus to settle for just some of the love and devotion that you want to offer to him, all the while you want to receive all of the forgiveness that he offers to you. Do you have something in your life, something around your neck that is preventing you from loving Jesus, not just with your words on Sunday morning when we sing a worship song, by how you live your life out? Do you have a habit, a behavior, a pattern? What in your life is preventing you from being fully devoted to Jesus? I want to ask you to bow your heads for a moment. As we wrap up, in a moment we're going to leave, we're going to get our cars, we're going to go get lunch, we're going to get our kids, we're going to do all this stuff we need to do today. But before we do that, I just want to ask, take 30 seconds and ask Jesus to reveal to you in your life what's he saying to you this morning. I'll give you a moment to do that. What, what did Jesus bring up in your heart? Keep your heads bowed for a moment. What did he bring up in your heart? What does he want to deal with in your life? Are you willing to pour that out and give that up to respond in love and devotion to him? With your heads bowed and your eyes still closed, I just want to ask, maybe you're here today and you've thought that you could earn God's love and forgiveness. You thought that if you just did well enough, that maybe at the end of the day, God would allow you into his heaven or accept you. Maybe you've been kind of closer to the Pharisee or kind of closer to the sinful woman, but either way, maybe you've realized today that you can't do it on your own. You need forgiveness from Jesus. If that's you, I want to just ask you, do you want that forgiveness? In your heart right now, will you pray and ask Jesus for his forgiveness. If that's you, pray that prayer right now. God, we come before you. 
We thank you for passages of Scripture like this. We thank you for passages of Scripture that turn our views of you and our views of other people upside down. We thank you for passages of Scripture that shouldn't just change the way we think, but change the way we live. God, I pray that we will be a people in this community of Butler and in our world who live in response to the forgiveness that you have given to us out of your grace and mercy. God, I pray that you'll use us now in how we live our lives to make a difference in the lives of those around us. Use this people today. In Jesus' name I pray. Have a great Sunday. We will see you again next week. Enjoy your afternoon and uh, have a wonderful week.